So this paper has two very different audiences uh, that I'm trying to address all at once. Uh, one is the audience of people who uh, occasionally write about constitutional law and have never heard the word liquidation. Uh, and I will say into this category falls a famous professor at Harvard Law School who I had dinner with a few years ago. This is part of what made me decide to write the paper. When I offhandedly mentioned something about liquidation and he uh, didn't know what it was, and then I explained it to him and he didn't like it. Uh, he, he didn't like the name. He didn't like the uh, concept. He didn't like the fact that it had to do with James Madison. He didn't like anything about it. Uh, and so of course that was the moment I thought, all right, somebody needs to write a paper about this and it might be me. Um, the second audience is people who do have heard of liquidation, who know this idea is kind of floating around, who know it's something that James Madison said about interpreting the Constitution, uh, fixing it through practice, but who may have still been wondering, uh, how exactly does it work? Can we hear more about the details of this? Uh, when is somebody going to produce a full-bore article-length treatment of this phenomenon? Uh, I suspect most people in the room are in the second category. Uh, and in any case, this is the paper to try to fill that much-needed gap in the literature. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, liquidation is a way of constructing or fixing legal meaning through post-enactment historical practice. As Madison said in Federalist 37, all new laws, though penned with the greatest technical skill and passed on the fullest and most mature deliberation, are considered as more or less obscure and equivocal until their meaning be liquidated and ascertained by a series of particular discussions and adjudications. So what is this? This is basically a form of, of historical gloss, a form of, of practice that, that takes obscure or equivocal provisions and then gives them a, a liquidated and ascertained meaning. Um, Madison in particular wrote a lot about this and, and what it is, and I try to sort of in the paper sketch out first what this theory of liquidation is and then some thoughts about what we ought to do with it. Uh, so on the historical side, I think from everything I've read, I've boiled down the key moves of liquidation to three steps. Uh, there has to be a constitutional indeterminacy, there has to be a course of deliberate practice interpreting that, that indeterminate provision, and there has to be some kind of settlement reflecting acquiescence or the public sanction. Uh, and those three things together result in a, a liquidation that makes the provision more determinate. Each of those formulations in turn has some other details baked in. So the requirement of indeterminacy means that it's always open to interpreters to disrupt a settled practice if they can argue that it was unambiguously wrong. Practice cannot, as James Madison wrote, uh, practice can expound the meaning of the Constitution, but it cannot change it. So outside the zone of indeterminacy, liquidations are cut off. The requirement of a course of deliberate practice requires multiple instances of deliberation over time. It's not just one event happens and that fixes the meaning of the Constitution. Uh, and it means that, that the issue has to be thought about. So it has to be deliberate practice, not just unthinking constitutional practice. Um, and it means that judicial actors, the non-judicial actors count alongside judicial actors. So much of liquidation is about congressional interpretations of the Constitution, presidential interpretations of the Constitution, all three branches uh, interpreting the Constitution, and then over time, their, their interpretations becoming a practice. And the idea of the public sanction licks liquidation up to, to Madison's political theory. Um, <clears throat> Madison wrote sort of extensively about representation and had this idea that all three branches are ultimately, and this is in line with the previous paper, uh, all three branches are ultimately fiduciaries or representatives of the people and ultimately should be sort of are competing representatives of, 
of the people, even in their sort of attempts to interpret and implement constitutional law. So if a liquidated practice takes hold among all three branches, then that's not the same as a constitutional amendment by any means, but it has some kind of popular public sanction that, that makes it okay to give that a certain amount of subconstitutional force. So when thinking about, when looking for the right kind of settlement or acquiescence that counts as a, as a liquidation, part of what we're looking for is that there's been either, either in reality or often, honestly, sort of imputed public acceptance of this kind of uh, historical practice by the, by the political branches. So then there's the question of, well, what should we do with this idea? Um, I think the most important and maybe the easiest way to think about liquidation is as analogous to precedent. Uh, indeed, it was even more analogous to precedent at the time that Madison was writing. Uh, so we now have a, a sort of gotten used to a stare decisis model of precedent in which courts rule one time and that one time ruling kind of makes law and you know, so that Justice Scalia can say, uh, Bush versus Gore, you know, that was decided, get over it, so that the Supreme Court can say, when we rule on a really contentious political issue, as in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, or Citizens United, or whatever it is, we are putting an end to the controversy. You know, once we speak, the whole thing is done. That's kind of, uh, many people, this is second nature. Of course, that's what precedent is. At the time of the founding, uh, that was much less true. Uh, the exact period during which all this changes and when it changes in England versus the states and which states is complicated and maybe I need to say more about it than I do, but, but in a very broad brush, uh, at the time of the founding, precedent was about having a series of decisions, having a, some people would call it a judicial custom, some people would call it a course of practice. It obviously has a lot in common with the common law generally and the idea of of unwritten legal principles reflected through a series of judicial decisions. But with that model of precedent, you can see liquidation as, in a sense, a slightly more departmentalist application of that idea. Rather than just looking at judges, we're looking at all the branches that can interpret the Constitution and seeing if there's some kind of customary practice that has taken hold among all of those. Anyway, if all that's right, and if precedent is still a valid interpretive modality today, and there are lots of arguments about about why, but most originalists have their arguments for precedent, even non-originalists have their arguments for precedent. Then I wonder if we can see liquidation as a possible alternative, <coughs> maybe a possible improvement to what we do with precedent now. So it'll supply some of the same basic goals of precedent of you know, providing stability and fixation over time while also allowing some things to change when they're really, really wrong. Uh, unlike the current stare decisis model, uh, it's more departmentalist, so all of the branches get a say. Uh, unlike the current stare decisis model, it doesn't try to cut off debate or fix things until there actually is some popular acceptance of the idea. So rather than, than five to four on one body, you need a series of decisions across a series of bodies. So for people who think precedent is okay, maybe we could ask whether, whether liquidation would actually be better. It's not the only way to think about liquidation by any means. There are arguments about, about the normative force of tradition that I rehearse in the paper also, not doing justice to them, but if, if you think tradition has normative force, liquidation is a kind of specific way of giving legal force to tradition. Um, there are probably other arguments, uh, but whatever we want to do with it, part of my goal here is just to sort of spell out the concept and then also we can, we can see where, where it might go. Okay, uh, two minutes left. Uh, a couple of confessions. So when I started writing this paper, I thought that I would uncover a lot more uses of the specific word liquidation than I actually did. 
so there are many different formulations, fixation, settlement. The ideas float around a lot. In courts, sometimes they're referred to as the canons of customary and contemporaneous uh, interpretation. There's sort of all sorts of different formulations of it floating around. So my hope that this was going to be a really cool corpus linguistic style search for the word liquidation has so far failed. Uh, that makes me wonder a little bit whether I, whether Madison's views are less representative than you might think. Uh, maybe maybe they still are representative, and he was just the one using this archaic term. Uh, but I'll just say that that caught me by surprise, so I should probably uh, confess it in the interest of scholarly honesty. Um, second and relatedly, you know, for my own interpretive priors and probably some other people in this room, the question of whether liquidation is actually binding for originalists should, should depend really ultimately on whether it was the law, whether it was a widespread interpretive method at the time at the founding or, or whenever you like. Um, I don't claim to have done that work in this paper. I've, I've started putting in some of the things I've found. You could do a whole lot more to figure out whether that's right. That probably is another paper. Uh, but I'm aware that, in a sense, for this to really be the most satisfying part of my interpretive project, that's the paper I probably should have written, but this is the one I wrote. <laughs>